Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we're at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode eight for August of 2016, and my name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about the television time travel revival, and then we'll also be discussing Van Helsing on Sci-Fi and the Netflix original drama Stranger Things. And we're very excited to share with you our interview segment as well. This podcast, we are talking with husband and wife team Anne Haish and James Tupper about their new sci-fi show coming in late September called Aftermath. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that, but that was a fun one to do. And we have a lot of interesting shows to talk about here because, I mean, not that they're related in terms of the time travel main topic that we're talking about. But some of the questions about trends and things like that that we're noticing leading into the fall season are going to be fun to discuss. Yeah, and for those of us that remain skeptical about the big three networks' ability to yeah. support genre fair on a long-term basis, color me skeptical at this point. Exactly. That's a big part of it. But before we get too far into it, for those who need to avoid spoilers by skipping certain segments... Here are the time codes for today's topics. Time travel trend. 159. Van Helsing. 2620. Stranger Things. 3716. Interview segment. 4602. All right. And we're here on a relatively spoiler-free discussion topic, which is this sudden trend of time travel television. And... I don't know that we're going to necessarily have an answer to our main question here, our thesis, as it were, which is, why is time travel all of a sudden so popular? Yeah, and, and there's a lot to go with that. And I think you and I, at the end of the day, are going to be on opposite ends of the spectrum in that I think you're a little bit more excited than I am. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I was excited at first to see some of these trends coming down the pipe and thinking that, okay, this is a niche interest that I've had for quite a while. And there certainly have been shows over the years, which we'll mention up front here as our introductory material to talk about how time travel has been a fun thing to explore in television, in, in novels, and in movies. But this trend makes you think, hmm, are we headed in the wrong direction with this concept. Right. And I think that's going to depend entirely on the show and what it actually tries to explore. And when we get to 12 Monkeys in a little bit, obviously that's at the upper end of the spectrum in terms of complexity, which obviously does not bode well for the general audience. 
Well, yeah, and that's definitely something we'll share as we talk about some of the more what we might call watered down time travel. <laughs> and that's okay. And, and you mentioned the, that our basic premise is to explore why this sudden resurgence. And, and I guess when you examine it, that age old question, if I could go back and do things over again, boy, would I do them differently. Right. But why now? Why is that something that is in the social consciousness? Is it because of the political climate, the economic climate, the age of terrorism, things like that? I mean, why exactly is it rising to the top in the entertainment world? And I'm sure there have been some kind of marketing study done that has caused all the networks, including the big three, to start putting out fare in this genre, this subgenre, really. But It'll be interesting to see because, of course, there's a rich tapestry of background in time travel television. It's not just something that's new. It's just that it's more frequent. So let's talk about, to start off with, some of the shows that have been out there over the years that we've really enjoyed in this time travel field. Okay. And, and let me just say before we get started with that, you give the network honchos a lot more credit than I do, that they've got studies that show this or that. And I don't doubt you. I just question the studies that they have because they certainly can't be looking at the numbers that 12 monkeys is putting up for instance which obviously critical acclaim show that that it's just the show itself is awesome but it's not bringing in the viewers that we hoped it would exactly so why i don't understand uh, I, I think there are some shows that we can point to so yeah 12 monkeys might not be one of them but that's right. one we enjoy <laughs> but right off the bat a, a show that if you haven't watched the show. You certainly have heard about it. Arguably the first major time travel show. And that would, of course, be Doctor Who, which began airing in 1963 and continues to this day. There was a brief period where it was off the air, but it's been pretty present in most sci-fi fans' lives. And now I question, maybe Doctor Who, and we'll talk about some other possibilities as well, but this is a show that perhaps might inspire the trend in the same way that Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead might inspire some knockoffs as well. So maybe Doctor Who, maybe people are trying to duplicate that success. And I think Doctor Who has become a bigger part of American mainstream culture. I mean, certainly when it came back on the air in 2005, it, it was an immediate hit, but it took a little bit of time for it to really catch on here in the States. And certainly it's, it's caught on big time. Exactly. And I think that's one of the big ones that is pointing in that direction, other than the complex shows like 12 Monkeys and Continuum that we love. There are shows that are more less, less serial in nature, more episodic. Right. But obviously the one aspect that they all have to focus on if we go back in time especially how much do we change if anything at all yes like where are the dangers in time travel is it something where we can erase ourselves is it something where we can change history to our detriment or are we trying to change something that someone else changed to get things back on track right now you mentioned at the top of the discussion is this resurgence perhaps politically motivated to a certain extent because of things that are going on socially, politically in the United States and around the world. And you take a show like Quantum Leap that aired 89 to 93. And certainly when Sam would go back, a lot of his incidents were really socially motivated. And I guess what we would call socially conscious topics. 
Yeah, that's true. And I, I'll be honest, I do see a lot of discussion threads on Facebook and elsewhere about joke articles where time travelers are coming back to kill Donald Trump <laughs> in the same way that we might discuss going back and killing Hitler to change history for the better. So, And of course, Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles, which is based on a movie franchise, plays with that idea, a disaster in the future and going back to try and get at the cause of it to prevent this horrible thing from happening in the future that we're not yet aware of. Well, right. And that's one of the things about time travel. When you look at the different types of time travel shows, and when we start looking at the ones that are on the fall docket, each of them approaches it in a different way. But with time travel shows, you've got some that I'll call deliberate versus accidental. So a show like 12 Monkeys, Terminator, that's deliberate deliberately going back in time to prevent the future that we have, right? You're right, as opposed to Continuum or Outlander where it happens by accident. Right. Well, the interesting thing about Continuum is that it really contains both, Mm -hmm. right? Because Liberate goes back deliberately. Right. (laughs) Kira goes back by accident. Right. And, And there's other examples too. I mean, Lost was by accident or certainly not willingly going back in time. And Life on Mars as well, where he's not consciously choosing to go back in time. And he doesn't even know if he is going back in time in Life on Mars. So yeah, there's a lot of different methods for getting people back in time. All of the examples that we're going to hear about coming this fall as brand new shows are deliberate time travel. They choose to travel in time. Right. But I think that's the beauty of time travel is that you do have that dilemma of how much do I change if I change anything at all? I mean, because essentially it gives the time traveler the opportunity to a certain extent play God. Oh, yeah. I think that's a big part of it is the power that they have is, you know, the same as any superpower that a superhero might have or supernatural powers that show up in other genre shows. So yeah, that's the time travel appeal, I think. And that's what's interesting about the shows that they're introducing this fall, uh, not just from some of the big networks, but also streaming and otherwise, is that they're going in a direction that seems to be more network related and trying to take this concept and make it smart, but also episodic rather than serial. Because I think the idea that some of these folks are having is that this concept could work. It gets the buy-in from the audience, but you're losing a lot of people due to the complexity. And I have to say, even though I'm a fan of complex time travel, I can see that there's some truth in that. Well, sure. And it doesn't have to be as complex as say 12 monkeys. Right. As much as I love that, that might not be for everyone. And so I do play devil's advocate to a certain extent. And I'll tell you the first show that we're going to be talking about here is Timeless on NBC, which I think if I'm feeling the room correctly, the audience out there, the genre fans are looking forward more to this one than any of the others, thinking that it might actually be a little bit more complex, even though it is an episodic show. Right. But my fear is that it's on NBC yeah, and that it's show run by Eric Kripke, who we know from Revolution and Sean Ryan from The Shield. And we already know what happened to Revolution, right. which was not time travel, which had a pretty solid fan base. The numbers weren't amazing, but they were decent. 
so that you throw a time travel show, what makes the network think that's going to do better than, say, a show like Revolution did? Exactly. And it's not, not got a ton of star power. We have this particular team. Uh, it's a government team in this show, which is headed by Agent Denise Christopher, played by Zakina Jaffrey, who's been showing up on all kinds of shows in this same kind of role, including House of Cards and others. She recruits a history professor whose name is Lucy. She's played by Abigail Spencer, who, you know, some people might know her, but she's not a huge name. And then her team is also made up of others that, you know, you may have heard of from other shows, but there's a soldier whose name is Wyatt, played by Matt Lanter. There's a scientist named Rufus, who's played by Malcolm Barrett. He's the African-American character that you've seen in the preview talking about some of the not so delightful aspects of traveling back in time for a member of his race. And then you've got the villain played by Goran Viznich, who we know, of course, from Extant, but not necessarily a star power draw himself. So it's not star power that's drawing them to it. So it's got to be the concept where you've got the criminal who has stolen a state-of-the-art time machine for mysterious and surely nefarious purposes. And in the pilot, apparently they are headed to May 1937, just in time for what should be the Hindenburg disaster and apparently trying to avoid that. And so you've got the time machine aspect. That's kind of fun. You've got the period costume and you've got the people kind of wondering about this technology, but pretty much is it going to be something where they're going from historical period to historical period? It might be. Yeah. And I like the fact that they have to use the time machines prototype. Yeah. To go back as opposed to say again, 12 monkeys where there's just one machine or like 112263 where you just go into the closet in the back of the uh, diner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the villain has the good time machine and the team has the <laughs> junker. But yeah, that's it's a fun concept and I think that's why people are buying into it. The promo is certainly interesting. I mean, you can see that the team is going to have to try and stay one step ahead of the fugitive while also uncovering the mystery behind it all because I think a big part of the preview that is out there is Goran Viznich's character telling Lucy that he's doing this at the direction of something that she gave to him in her own future timeline, but he's got this journal that apparently she wrote and is and is guiding him along. So there is a deeper mystery at play, but is it going to be sustainable is the question. Right. And is it going to be understandable enough? See, that's the problem that I see with this on a network like NBC People like you and I, we're going to be fine. Yeah. Because anything I don't understand, I'm going to ask you to explain to me. <laughs> but but I'm willing to do that, and I'm certainly glad that I've got you to ask. But the average viewer, I hope. I really hope. Well, I'll tell you, the thing that bothered me, because I was pretty down with the idea. I wasn't wildly enthusiastic about it. But it wasn't until I saw an interview with Sean Ryan, one of the showrunners, who says, it's important to Eric and I, and NBC as well, that this not be the kind of show that falls down some serialized rabbit hole and loses itself and turns on itself. This show is much more like Back to the Future and Quantum Leap than it is like 12 Monkeys. So for him to specifically point that out and then also say that this is going to be about 80% story of the week does not instill me with a whole lot of confidence. Well, it doesn't instill you. It doesn't instill me in that it's not the kind of thing that appeals to me because the, it, when Quantum Leap aired in 89, 93, 
we weren't into serialized drama the way we are now. It's not something that we were used to and, quite frankly, at this point, come to expect. Right. I mean, it really had its heyday with the X-Files where we all started to realize, hey, we like Monster of the Week, but I think we might like these mythology episodes more. Right. And so more and more shows started to tap into that. So, you know, it says in the press material that they're going to be visiting uh, Watergate, World War II Germany, Rat Pack era Las Vegas, the Alamo, and Abraham Lincoln's assassination. And that might all be very fun. And perhaps the general audience will buy into it because of not having to keep track of the twists and turns and paradoxes of time travel. Besides, of course, the main one dealing with Abigail having written this journal that's guiding the villain along. But it'll be interesting because that is a very quantum leap formula. And will it play in the current decade? Right. We'll see. <laughs> well, another one of the shows that we're going to be looking at, uh, well, I'm not going to be looking at it. I don't have a whole lot of confidence about it, but it is, an ABC show called Time After Time, which is based on a 1979 book of the same name by Carl Alexander, which was already produced as a movie, by the way, with Malcolm McDowell and David Warner and Mary Steenburgen. So this is something that might already be familiar to time travel aficionados. It wasn't a wildly popular movie, but it was something that played with an interesting concept, which was what if H.G. Wells was real and an actual time traveler. And he was friends with Jack the Ripper, didn't know it. And suddenly Jack the Ripper steals his time machine and H.G. Uh, Wells has to go after him to prevent him from causing more murders. Again, cool concept, but how sustainable is it? Right. And then on top of that, I can't get Cindy Lauper out of my head. <laughs> yeah. And that wasn't always that. I think the show was originally just called Time. So the change to Time After Time is relatively recent. But again, we have stars in the show that are not genre stars. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we're talking to Anne Heche later on after all. <laughs> but, you know, Freddie Stroma is playing H.G. Wells. He's from Unreal, which is that show that's very popular nowadays that follows a Bachelor style of reality show and the behind the scenes of that in a dramatic fashion. And then Josh Bowman plays Jack the Ripper, and he's a big character on Revenge that just left that show. So... These are characters that might bring in a specific type of audience, but is it an audience that's going to be interested in the time travel aspect of the show? I don't know. Right. But to be fair, who did we know from Continuum? Rachel Nichols. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> and that's about it. Uh, 12 Monkeys. Yeah, good point. Good point. And I think that's the beauty about genre fair is that the audience doesn't necessarily expect the big name star. I mean, sometimes when we get that star, we like it. Mm -hmm. But we don't necessarily expect it because we're more interested in the writing and the premise. And the characters. Sure, and the characters. Whether the characters are likable. And that's the thing about Time After Time is that the one thing that kind of piqued my interest was during the most recent promo that's out there, wherein Regina Taylor from The Unit shows up as H.G. Wells' great-granddaughter, supposedly there to help him at his older self's request. He has no idea who she is. So that's an interesting concept because that brings in a little bit of the paradoxical element, just like the journal does for Timeless. So there are some cool concepts they might be able to play around with, but I'm not sure if it's going to grab me. Now, do we know whether or not Wells references his own novel? Uh, I do believe so in the promo. Yeah, it is referenced because one of the other characters is played by Genesis Rodriguez. She plays Jane Walker, the Mary Steenburgen character from the movie. And she 
says, oh, you're H.G. Wells. You wrote The Time Machine. And he says, not yet. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so, yeah, there is some self-referential humor. I think it's very elementary like the Sherlock Holmes show that's on network television. So I think it falls in that kind of vein, but we'll see. Okay. It has possibilities. We'll see. But the one that's kind of piquing my interest is actually mostly because it's a Canadian show, but it will be airing and distributed by Netflix here in the States. And that's travelers, which is created by Stargate creator, Brad Wright. And this one looks a little bit more, up our 12 monkeys and continuum alley (laughs) it's set hundreds of years from now when the last surviving humans discover the means of sending consciousness back through time directly into people in the 21st century and that you know talk about quantum leap that's very much in that vein and these travelers assume the lives of seemingly random people while secretly working as teams to perform missions in order to save humanity from a terrible future armed with only their knowledge of history and an archive of social media profiles. <laughs> so, I see. Now you've got time travel and you've got time travel to save the human race from this awful fate. But wow, the whole concept of not only traveling in time, but sending consciousness through time onto people. That's pretty cool. And there's a little bit of a Sensate flavor. I mean, Sensate is also distributed by Netflix, so I'm not sure if that has anything to do with it. But the fact that there are these characters who are very disparate in terms of their backgrounds, you've got an FBI special agent played by Eric McCormack, who, you know, definitely some star power there. And then you've got a young intellectually disabled woman who's in the care of her social worker played by Patrick Gilmore. I'm happy to see him in in a show again. And then there's a high school quarterback. You've got a single mom. You've got a heroin addicted college student. It's like, what do all these characters have in common and why are they doing all the time traveling? <laughs> so it is an interesting concept. And we love our Canadian sci-fi. So I'll be giving it a try. Oh, geez. Next thing you know, you're going to be telling me Amanda Tapping is going to be directing some of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's in there. Will Waring of Continuum is in there to direct. We've even got Ian Tracy showing up at one point, who's a big part of Continuum's success. So we don't have a release date for this show yet, but production just started in April. There's going to be 12 episodes. So stay tuned for that. That's not quite on the same timetable as the first two shows we mentioned, which are fall premieres, but it's still in the mix. It's still part of this trend. And finally, the one we want to end up with is a completely different kind of trend. It's not only combining the time travel trend, it's also the comedy sci-fi trend, which seems to be catching on because of Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who brought us Last Man on Earth, which has had a certain amount of success, a post-apocalyptic comedy. So now you've got a time travel comedy called Making History on Fox. Now, this is not one that probably will appeal to me, but it'll be interesting to see if it catches on because of Last Man on Earth's semi-success. Yeah, and the fact that you've got three friends from the description that that I read, three friends from two different centuries trying to balance the thrill of time travel and, of course, the mundane concerns of their present-day lives. So obviously that's a setup for a lot of humor, but it's also the potential setup for some pretty cool storylines. Yeah, and the promo is kind of fun. I'm not sure if they're showing us maybe all of the comedic moments in that promo. It's very possible because you've got Dan Chambers, who's played by Adam Pally of the Mindy Project. He's a computer science professor at a small Massachusetts college, kind of a flunky. He's not really all that much of a teacher. And so he discovers time travel 
using this big duffel bag. I mean, it's not even a very fancy time machine, but he has been using it to basically win friends and influence people in the 18th century. He even has a girlfriend back then who is the daughter of Paul Revere. She's the third member of that team because he recruits one of his professor friends who might know more about history once he finds out that he accidentally may have prevented the American Revolution from getting started by being involved with Paul Revere's daughter. So the comedy that ensues from that situation, trying to correct history, having three different personality types, you know, a fish out of water from the 18th century, a kind of a loser professor, and then a smart guy, kind of nerdy guy as their person that they're trying to help correct everything. So conceptually, very good. There's certainly a pedigree behind Phil Lord and Chris Miller. And it'll be interesting to see if it meets the same kind of success as Last Man on Earth. But it certainly is a different twist. And I enjoy seeing sci-fi in any form, even if it's not one that I'll particularly tune into. And you got your star power, Paul Revere's daughter, <laughs> Leighton Meester. Come on, dude. Oh, yeah. Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl. Yeah. See, it's like these guys aren't necessarily from genre shows. I mean, Yasser Lester plays Chris Parrish, the uh, smart professor. He's from Key and Peele. So people might recognize him from that comedy show. So it's a big question. You know, can a woman from 1775 adapt to life in 2016? Can these three intrepid time travelers improve the past and get rich in the process as well? And of course, here's what's interesting. Both this show, Making History and Timeless, are playing with the concept of a black man in the past and the problems that they might occur. It's sort of a socially conscious message in Timeless, whereas it's kind of a fodder for comedy here in Making History. So that also might be motivated by the, you know, the rejection of political correctness in this day and age. And that's not lost on Key and Peel. <laughs> exactly. So definitely be interested to see how all these are received. And I'll just give a quick mention. There's also the time traveling bong on Comedy Central, which is a limited series, miniseries kind of thing. But again, like, where are all these coming from? Who decided this was a good idea? And will it actually succeed? Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it all ends up uh, as the fall season gets started. Well, hopefully, time traveling bong will have more than one episode that they won't get distracted while they're making it. <laughs> exactly. Forget what they were doing. So it's interesting because we are actually talking about in our later topics shows that we have been watching that also are following their own kinds of trends in a way. So really interested to see where the time travel aspect, I love time travel and I hope they don't ruin it. That's my main concern. And let's leave it at that. Yes. <laughs> but we're talking a little bit about trends and the show that you just got to see a sneak peek of that you'll be reviewing for Den of Geek is Van Helsing. So tell us a little bit about what can we expect and where is this coming from? Well, the show's going to debut September 23rd on Sci-Fi, and they ran a sneak preview of the pilot right after Sharknado 4. And on the one hand, I think it's a good thing because a lot of people were not aware that Sci-Fi was going to do that, so they haven't seen it. My review on Den of Geek is one of the few that's actually out there that really reviews the entire episode. Most of the reviews that I read we're really reviewing the trailer right. and any promotional material that was circulated. Now, sometimes people do review it later on, and we'll probably 
on Den of Geek, boost your article back to the front again <laughs> when it comes time for the actual premiere. But yeah, I was looking everywhere for reviews of this show, and yours was one of only two that I found. Well, let's start with the key word, and that is vampires, because it is a vampire show, and, and the danger that this show faces is becoming just another vampire show. And one thing that becomes immediately clear very early in the episode, this is not your teenage daughter's vampire story. This is not Twilight. It's not True Blood. It's not Penny Dreadful. <laughs> These vampires are not attractive. Yeah, and you talked about the fact that it has to overcome that stigma. And it's not just that one. The fact that it's called Van Helsing, number one, because people are going to start thinking of the Hugh Jackman and Kate Beckinsale movie. And the fact that it is immediately recognizable as playing on the walking dead appeal. So a lot of things to overcome. And I think it did it successfully, but are people going to give it a chance because of those preconceptions? Right now, when we say van Helsing van is short for Vanessa. So she's a distant relative of Van Helsing. Okay. And not unlike Winona Earp, she in this case turns out to be a vampire. See, even to say, and this is the cool twist here, not so much that she's a vampire killer, although technically I guess she is a vampire killer, she turns people from vampires back to human. Yeah, she's the cure. <laughs> and that's her power. And a lot of people, you mentioned Walking Dead, and the comparisons are unavoidable because early on, you could make the argument that they've simply substituted vampires for zombies. Right. And you wouldn't necessarily be wrong, but here's where they've got me, and they're going to have me for a while. It's going to take a lot for them to lose me here, and it goes back to one man, and that's Simon Barry, who is the executive producer. He has written three episodes of this first season. And obviously you and I know Simon Barry from continuum as its creator and showrunner and, and main writer. And also Jonathan Lloyd Walker from continuum is co-executive producer. He's written two episodes. So right away there's five of the 13 episodes and he wrote the pilot and he wrote the pilot. So in addition, we've got Jeremy Smith, Matt Venables on the writing team. So, I don't want to say they brought the entire Continuum crew, but they brought a lot of them. And that's a good thing. And it's immediately evident because I think the main criticism, and it's funny that we're talking about it as people having criticism of it, because I did participate in the live tweet and it wasn't overwhelmingly positive. Those people who. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event right now. Get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark even tuned in because a lot, like you said, a lot of people didn't know it was doing a sneak peek, but it's going to be interesting. There's a very mixed audience out there. People who are going to go with their preconceptions, go with their knee jerk reactions to what they're seeing on the screen and not necessarily see the deeper appeal of the characters of the writing for me, cinematography. I mean, it is beautifully shot. 
Yeah, I thought so too, but there were a few scenes that were clearly CGI. True. That could have been better. I'll agree with you on that. Yes. Some of the blood. (laughs) They weren't terrible, but they could have been better. Well, even one of the cityscape scenes, but when the episode opens, you see the text on the screen tells us it's 2019, three years since the rising began, civilization's fallen, vampires rule the streets, only whispers of a human savior have given mankind hope. And Van Helsing, Vanessa Helsing, is that savior, or so it appears. And what I love, I'm a sucker for the reluctant Messiah character. Yeah, I've noticed that. (laughs) And that certainly seems to be what we have here. The other interesting thing is that the first half of the pilot, Vanessa Helsing is lying comatose on a table in you know some sort of a hospital room we do know we're in seattle and then she gets bitten by a vampire wakes up and not only does she not turn we later learn that the vampire that bit her has turned back human and now pretty much everybody's looking at each other that what the heck is going on here and were you okay with the fact that kelly overton's character did not really come into play until halfway through the episode. I think that was a lot of the problems people had with the pacing of it was that it was slow to get going, I guess. Well, see, on the one hand, I feel like it was slow, but on the other hand, I like the fact that, okay, I know that's Vanessa Helsing. Is she dead? Is she going to come back to life? Is this a resurrection? Is she in a coma? So seeing her on that table for the first 20 minutes or so really gave me a lot of time to think about that. And every pilot has a certain problem. And that is how do you handle the background information that the viewer needs? And some go heavy on exposition, heavy on voiceover. Van Helsing does neither. And that they use a lot of the action, a lot of the violence. And and there is a lot of violence. There is a lot of blood. There is a lot of gore. So if you like walking dead, yeah, I don't know why you wouldn't like this, at least give it a chance. So I love the fact that they did that, that the action I feel is really used to produce actions in the characters. How does that character handle what he or she just saw? Yeah, I thought the action was very believable. The dialogue, the sort of muted conversations that you would have if you were stalking around on the surface worried about being attacked. So I thought it was all very believable. I understood where people had the concerns about the pacing, but I kind of liked that it had that realistic feel to it, the realistic tone. Well, the other thing that I liked in terms of realism, the character Axel played by Jonathan Scarf from Hell on Wheels, and there's a heavy Hell on Wheels background to this show. Yeah, Christopher Heyerdahl too, the Swede. Right, in terms of the writers and showrunner. But he plays a Marine who's been ordered to guard Vanessa. He doesn't know why. He doesn't care why. He follows his orders. He's supposed to watch the doc, too, and she's already turned. He is. And that that was another (laughs) cool little detail there where he apparently gives her blood transfusions, although I guess it's technically not a transfusion. (laughs) It's feeding her. (laughs) It's feeding her. But. The other thing I love is his referring to Vanessa as Sleeping Beauty. It's clear he's developed some sort of a relationship over the years he's been watching her and what that relationship is. And and I do hope, I know it's hard for you to believe I'm saying this. 
I hope they leave the shipping angle out of this show. Yeah. <laughs> and what gives me hope and gives me faith is that Simon Barry managed to pretty much avoid it through four seasons of Continuum. On the other hand, there was that shower scene <laughs> in this premiere where I think the tensions, at least from her side, were quite evident. He took it as no big deal, but... Well, well, I think she, again, she wakes up, she's totally disoriented. The one thing she does know is that her daughter is missing. Right. And that's where the reluctant Messiah comes in. All she cares about is getting her daughter back. She doesn't care about what she can or can't do with regard to vampires. Right. So where you say that shower scene, I'm not even sure I would consider it titillating. Okay. (laughs) In that she just simply wanted to cover up out of modesty he, as you point out, it's no big deal, lady. I've been watching you for three years. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff here. A lot of great characters. I really liked the young kid played by Oliver Smith. Really cool character there. And Christopher Heyerdahl is a great character as well. He seems to have a nice intro for him, his character. And I think Jonathan Scarf did a great job as well. And Kelly Overton, of course, you know, can't go wrong. And you mentioned Christopher Heyerdahl's character, Sam. The interesting thing there is that he's deaf. And I also love, it seems as if they're setting him up to perhaps be the show's conscience, perhaps even voice of reason at certain times, because it is a post-apocalyptic time. It, It is a time of life and death struggles, food shortages, medicine shortages, people missing, people after you all the time. So that the tendency is to perhaps lash out first, think about the consequences later. His character a few times tries to put the reins on, and it's interesting because he is deaf, and I don't think we hear him speak in this first episode either. Yeah, he just has a presence about him, and I guess that's from my previous experiences with that actor. But yeah, I think it's a great ensemble cast. It's a shame that we have to wait until late September to pick up episode two, but hopefully people will talk about it and give it a try once it comes out in September. Cause there's a lot of shows coming out at the same time and it's up paired with Z nation, which has a certain amount of following on sci-fi as well. And it's, it's certainly related thematically, but Dave, the show I want to talk about has really come out of nowhere, at least for me and is really being passed around as one of these shows where People are recommending it and saying, have you seen it yet? Have you seen it yet? Because it is on Netflix. You can download it and watch it at your leisure. And that's Stranger Things, which is a really unique look at a 80s style of horror, supernatural thriller. But it's everything that you might remember from the 80s and enjoying about E.T. or Stand By Me or a lot of other shows that this plays a lot of visuals to kind of appeal to the nostalgia for people who grew up in the 80s like I did. Now, you didn't grow up in the 80s, Dave, but... (laughs) I was alive in the 80s. (laughs) But, I mean, everything about this show, whether it's the actors, you've got Winona Ryder playing Joyce Byers in this show, you've got Matthew Modine. These are actors that we associate with the 80s. You've got the soundtrack being in the 80s. You've got the setting for the show for the storyline taking place in the 80s all the fashions that take place and even some of the tropes that they play around with not the least of which of course are the kid actors which are just brilliantly cast in this show where the children have to do a lot of the investigation of what 
the supernatural goings on in the town are all about. And also the relationships, the romantic fumblings that are going on amongst the teenage characters also feel very much like something we might have seen in the 80s itself. And all that you have to add are some of the more modern special effects. And you've got a real appealing nostalgia property that almost feels like you've gone back in time to enjoy a show that you missed the first time around. Well, the other interesting thing is that the eighties, it's almost as if it was that last decade, the age of innocence, if you will, which is, I guess, ironic because I believe Winona Ryder was in that movie age of innocence. (laughs) But I think there's so much that they can use and around the world. Historically, there was a lot going on in the eighties as well. Right. And this show certainly plays on some of those same paranoias with regard to the communists and, you know, nuclear proliferation, secret government projects, things like that. And it actually deals with some real stuff like the MK ultra program, which actually brings about one of the two mysterious things that happened in the show, which is the girl with mysterious powers, very much in the vein of Firestarter or Carrie or any other Stephen King telekinetic girl <laughs> that you might choose from his pantheon of, of stories. Okay. So we're saying MK ultra is real. Well, MK ultra was an actual experiment. That's a, that's a historical thing, whether or not it was used the way that it was depicted in the show is another story, but certainly the drug experiments that might've been attributed to government projects in real history were what gives this girl her powers. But what's interesting is that they have the girl who escaped from the Hawkins National Lab, and they've got this creature feature where there's this monster loose in town, and one of the kids who's in this group of nerdlings playing Dungeons and Dragons in one of their basements, you know, he goes missing, and that's what where everything gets started in the show, and it's because of this monster who has taken him, as we find out later, to another dimension. They call it the Upside Down, and it's just a world right next to ours, and so a lot of it plays with the idea that the character that has gone missing, whose name is Will, is right there. He just can't get back to the people who care about him. And the government, meanwhile, has to cover it all up because they don't want anyone knowing about their experiments with the girl, nor the fact that they've let this creature loose as a result of some of what she's been up to. So it just is really well doled out chapter by chapter, eight episodes of this show, and all very self-contained and ending on a note that makes you feel like they could do something else with this for a season two, or they could just leave it self-contained because it feels like an eighties movie that has the villain coming back for one last time or the question mark at the end as to what really happened. And are they really finished? Did they really beat the bad guys? And is the monster really gone for good? Now, did you binge the whole thing? I did not. I'm not a really a real big on binging. I doled him out over a reasonable amount of time. But you certainly could have done that and watched it as an eight-hour movie because it certainly plays that way. But I really love how they bring together Girl with Powers with Creature Feature together. And they leave a lot of questions up in the air because you've got this very cool chief of police played by uh, David Harbour of Newsroom. He plays Jim Hopper. And at the end of this series, and I'm not going to give away too much for those people who are planning on watching it, maybe skipping through a little bit. He gets into the car with some of the government folks at the end, and he has made some kind of deal with them in order to get the rescue 
that needs to happen in the show finished, but he gets into the car with the enemy at the end and delivers some ego waffles to a box hidden out in the woods, which is the favorite meal of the girl with telekinetic powers who we assume is gone at the end of this series. So is she really gone is one of the big questions. And of course, Will, who has been rescued, the boy who went missing at the beginning of the series, has been rescued from this monster, and yet he sort of coughs up a little tentacle at the end of the series, making you think that perhaps he's still infected, or maybe he's going to be imbued with abilities or become a monster himself. So definitely leaves the door open for a season two, and Sean Levy, the executive producer, has done some interviews where he indicates that he says, we definitely are hopeful to go several more seasons. And the plan is to continue with this set of characters while introducing a few critical key new ones next season. So I'll just say that a lot of the big mysteries get answered at the end of season one, but we are very much kind of unearthing new problems and questions that merit future stories and future investigation in the most enjoyable way. So I'll tell you, it ended such that it really could have stood alone, but I'm happy to hear that maybe they'll play around with this because I've never seen anything like this show in terms of taking some very familiar things and making them new again. Now, is it parallel universe, multi-universe, or just a pocket dimension? I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's even better that we don't know. Yeah, it's just called the Upside Down. It's a world right next to ours. And basically, the cool thing about it is that the girl with telekinetic powers, because they're trying to use her to spy on the Ruskies, you know, by using her telepathic powers, in order to get to, you know, someone in Russia that she wants to hear, overhear a conversation, she has to go through this dimension in order to listen in on their thoughts. And so she unwittingly unleashes this creature and that's not revealed until later in the series. So two separate stories seemingly unrelated end up being very much related. And the guilt that she feels for having unleashed this monster on what, what become her friends, these young boys is very touching and very much motivating the character throughout the series. And I don't know, it's just so great. And I think the biggest part of it is the casting these kids are just so good and remind you of all the wonderful characters from, like I said, Stand By Me or E.T. or any of those other ones that have child actors in them. So, And look, as we know, kids can make or break a show. Right. So it's really encouraging what you've got to say about these kids. And I just want to say in, in closing on this topic, for those of you who are wondering why Nancy ends up with Steve at the end, I just want to say, remember that Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink ended up with Andrew McCarthy, not John Cryer. <laughs> so that's very much an 80s idea is that the girl doesn't necessarily end up with the misfit guy. She does sometimes end up with the popular guy that you don't want to be redeemed. But <laughs> I thought that was a nice little touch at the end of that series as well. So just so great. And, and I can't recommend it highly enough. But we're going to be going into some discussion of fall shows, just as we did for our time travel segment. In fact, our next podcast is really going to be our fall TV preview podcast next month. Really looking forward to that. But our interview actually is a little bit of a preview of a show that's coming in late September, just like Van Helsing is. And that's with married couple Anne Heche and James Tupper, who are actually playing a married couple in a new show on sci-fi called 
Aftermath. Now, of course, Anne Haitian James Tupper met on the set of Men in Trees, and Tupper is known for his roles as Dr. Chris Sands in Mercy and David Clark in Revenge. Whereas Anne Haitian, of course, comes to sci-fi with a huge background in blockbuster movies going back quite a ways, including the Psycho remake in 1998, the Six Days, Seven Nights in 1998, which, Dave, you reminded me, <laughs> was another disaster type movie, right? Right, where, where it's disaster survival, which is really what Aftermath is all about. Yeah, that one with Harrison Ford. And of course, the one I remember her from, loved her in, was The Juror with Alec Baldwin in 96. So we spoke to the couple recently, and we really were <laughs> a little bit starstruck. I just couldn't believe we were talking to Anne Heche. And they are playing the Copelands, who are parents of a family whose members have unique skills to survive the unexplained natural disasters that are destroying the world and unleashing supernatural creatures from a variety of cultures and mythologies. So let's take a listen to our interview that we had with them last week. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to be talking about this new show. It sounds really cool. Thanks for having us. And just by way of description for this show, uh, James Tupper and Anne Haish star in Aftermath, which follows the Copeland family. They're playing parents Karen and Joshua, and their children are Dana, Brianna, and Matt. And they battling they are battling for survival when civilization comes to an apocalyptic end, triggered by storms, meteor strikes, earthquakes, a plague, and and here's the really cool part: the rise of supernatural creatures. And <laughs> and you guys, that seems like an awful lot. What, what if is this going to be more environmentally related, disaster related, or how is this supernatural element coming in? It's not post-apocalyptic, it's during apocalypse, but it's more like we don't understand exactly what's happening, where it's like all this change is happening in the world, and we're not sure that it's the end of days. We're just trying to battle it. But it gives the writer this incredible leeway to go in every different direction. Like It's really fun with all the stuff that we encounter, because it's all these myths and legends that sort of are suddenly have the freedom to come to life. Okay, so they don't really know if it's related to the environmental stuff, or, or they assume it is. Well, it isn't defined. That's the fun of this show is that you're going along with the movie. It's the, the mystery of what is happening is as much for the Copelands as it is going to be for the audience. So each thing that we encounter is because James' character plays a scientist and a theologian and a person who studies myth and religion and his daughter also, Dana, is also very intrigued by all of this. That's how we get our kind of essence of what the stories, the creatures that we're meeting, the basis for the stories that we're encountering, but nothing is exactly based on anything factual in history. It's just that the historical understanding of it is what helps us, you know, move forward and understand what's happening in front of us. I think in every world religion and culture, there's like different touch touch points of like creatures or things that they've invented to help describe themselves or events around them. And this poses the question, maybe what happens if those are real? Yeah. Now, for Anne, you know, your character has a military background, and it seems likely she's going to have to resort to committing acts she never imagined she'd have to commit, maybe even in the military. So does she have to reconcile this at the same time that she's trying to raise and protect three children? Absolutely. I think one of the fun things about this, Karen certainly is, a, is an airline pilot and does, and she's a, she's a doer and she is the physical embodiment of survival, really, and will do anything for her family and, and their survival. But throughout, each one of the characters confronts 
their own moral center in each decision that they have to make. And there are, it's not only Karen, but every single one of the family members is constantly confronting who they are, why they're making the decisions they're making, and can they stay true to who they are and what their family core is of truth and dignity and love. Their ethical center. Well, this is probably like one of my favorite characters I've ever seen Anne play. And she's like, in my mind, like some of the great characters in American film. But she's like, it's really fun. Like, Karen doesn't ever reach for a doorknob. She just boots the door in and goes in, you know, to that strength. Yeah, the the dynamic that you're going to have as a married couple seems like it's going to be really fun with what people might perceive, and I don't think it really should be these days, but might be perceived as kind of a role reversal. Would that be accurate? No, I think it definitely is playing into that. It, we we confront it all the time. It, it definitely, he is the brains, and, and I am, in a way, the acting force um, because of my training. But, of course, because of the show, those roles everything will be tested and everything will be turned on its head. Now for James, um, this Joshua Copeland character, he's got a career as a university professor, which gives him unique insights into world cultures. So will his expertise mostly be what ties in with the supernatural elements? Is it coming from a cultural background, that sort of thing? Well, you know, one of the things that was really, when I was a kid and I saw like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's like this, wondrous journey into other like places and at that time the world was a lot bigger than it is now so a lot of the countries and cultures we've, we can see them we can look them up online it, i think it reopens that door of adventure where you're like oh my god what the heck is going to happen next even time is altered sometimes so you, you can meet different versions of yourself or you can meet there's always they're having a lot of fun playing within this the realm of our of a, a human perception and I think Josh is trying to puzzle it all together. Like I, said, I guess I'm the person that's trying to solve what's happening. And it's a race against the clock to do it, to, to save my family. As an aside, I noticed uh, in your bio that you spent some time in Kenya as a kid and <laughs> maybe picked up a little Swahili. You're going to use that at all in the show? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. No, it hasn't come up yet, but I'm ready. I'm ready to count it in. <laughs> Well, you've told us a little bit about your character, so if there's anything else you can tell us, but but I'm also interested in the marriage dynamic that the couple has. You know, Michael mentioned the role reversal. Any real-life touches that you guys brought from your off-screen relationship? Um, I I don't know. I I told Emma she wasn't allowed to bring Karen home. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't listen. No, of course not. And that's the dynamic. (laughs) Well, I would imagine it, it sounds like James is going to face a lot more of these moral and ethical issues, and it's probably going to be more difficult for him to do what he needs to do. You know, we just shot a scene recently that, we're, um, that things got out of hand, and, and uh, a lot of the things were killed and stuff, and we were like, oh, damn. Like, and then we had this conversation about it, and I was like, wow, this show really does attempt to take into account how difficult it is to uh, – to hurt people and to be a person that's like trying to do the right thing. And I feel like a, a lot of the our men and women in the services and stuff are like definitely facing that kind of, uh, you know, uh, query. And it was really fun to play out the scenes because they really write for them. They really want to, they want to get in and discuss it and feel it out and you know, they want to play with it. So I guess every good show starts with great writing and I feel like we, we've got that. So. And and what's your characterization of some of these kids that are in your family? Because, of course, a couple of them come from The Killing, which Dave and I very much enjoyed. Some great actors oh, yeah. in your family. 
Well, I think it's very special to meet a group of people that we admire and love working with and just being with. We, our family, the Copelands, travels around in an RV. Of course, in the pilot, our daughter is kidnapped. She's one of twin daughters, and they're 16 years old. And one of the daughters, Brianna, is kidnapped by a being and taken literally up into the sky away from us. So the connection that we all needed to have very quickly, which nobody can ever know, was immediate. And so our family gets into the RV to go and find her. And you will find us all in the RV every day, whether or not we're shooting in the RV or not. We all kind of gather in there and talk and play games and do trivial pursuit games and card challenges and all of these things because we get along so well. So everybody can always find the family because we're always in our RV. And that's just a little bit of the magic that we feel for these kids. They're all super terrific actors and they are willing to do anything. And they're emotionally, I mean, this is a show where you're committing to larger than life. The arena is larger than life, you know? And if you, you have to commit your emotions that big and that large to be able to embrace a reality that doesn't exist, right? So these kids are just blowing us away every day. We have, and I don't think the show would work if that weren't the case. We we all feel very lucky to be working together. Now, I'd imagine there are a fair number of action sequences throughout the series. So what do you enjoy about getting physical and what do you have to be aware of and what kind of training was involved? I mean, really, if if an 18-wheeler just smashed me up against a wall (laughs) and then stayed there for a while and then backed up a couple of feet and then smashed me again, that would not have been training for the amount of physicality (laughs) that we are going through. There is action every single second. We turn around. If we're not on the set with each other, we will be shooting in different locations and come back to our circus and Without a doubt, one of us has blood coming out of their head. We have ice bags on our shoulders. We're covered in dirt. I mean, it is. it has been one of the most physical <laughs> we laugh. But, I mean, what I just said, honestly, James looked at me the other night when I came home from work and was like, dying. I shit bruises everywhere. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, how did you do that? He's like, well, we're, we're cutting a few corners, and I was, like, at the bottom of this cliff, and the stunt guys all threw rocks down on me. They were, like... <laughs> halfway to rock and then they poured a bucket of water and liquid blue on her and like i'm like wait what (laughs) that's aftermath whenever we're in an aftermath moment all the cast laughs like yeah appropriately named a new verb verb when something doesn't make sense but you're doing it anyway and it most most definitely is going to hurt you it's aftermathy (laughs) perfect now this show is actually described as a limited series so do you think a second season is a possibility or has the plan always just been to do the 13 episodes? Oh, no, I definitely think they want to do a second season. Absolutely. Great. That's... I think they're, they're hopers that they're going to do five, but who you knows? We hope. Well, it sounds absolutely intriguing. I, I definitely can't wait. We haven't done it justice. I hope it's really even more compelling than what we say. We really love it, and we hope people are we take the ride with us. Well, in the, in the end, it's really about are the characters compelling and is the premise compelling? And I think you've got that in spades. So, we <laughs> well, get back to us after you see the pilot. All right, we'll do. All right. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Anne and James, for joining us today, and we wish you the best of luck with aftermath. Thank you, guys. Cheers. 
All right. So that sounds like a great movie. And it was so great to talk to them and find out a little bit about their experience on the set of Aftermath. I'm really looking forward to this one. It's very different and also maybe has the same kind of caveats that some of the time travel shows we talked about earlier where we're like, are they going to get away with this? Are they going to be able to carry this off with people like Anne Haitian and James Tupper? But I'm going to give it a try. Right. And the other thing I like about it in the same way that I really love the reluctant Messiah motif, I love the idea of watching characters that are faced with situations where there are no good options. Oh, yeah. And I really like the Indiana Jones-esque feel to the description that these guys have have really given this show to us because of course we don't have a preview of this one yet. All we have is the descriptions that are out there from sci-fi and what Anne Haitian and James Tupper told us. So really sounds cool. It's got some kid actors from the killing, which was a show you and I enjoyed. And I think it's got a lot of potential to do a new twist, not on post-apocalypse as James said, but during apocalypse, <laughs> Perry apocalypse. Right. But a lot of good shows that we have on our docket there, and I hope you enjoyed our discussion of all these various shows that we've been enjoying and will be enjoying. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. We'll be back in September to preview the fall genre offerings, but in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on SoundCloud iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And plus, we take suggestions for future topics. Just email us at scififidelity at gmail.com, and we'll see if we can get that onto a future podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.